Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Our second reading tonight comes from the prophet Jeremiah, but in the poetry of a different book in the Hebrew Bible called Lamentations. These readings are selected from the readings for Holy Saturday in the Revised Common Lectionary. This one is from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and then the end of that chapter, verses 19 through 24. I am one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone, he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stones. He has made my paths crooked. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in the Lord. This too is the word of God for the people of God. If you came to me and poured out the story of your life, the condensed version, most likely, of all the hurts you have endured, of all the ways shame and suffering have accrued to you, of all the ways your body and mind and spirit have been assaulted and abused. If you trusted me, with these precious vulnerabilities, if you showed me the scars or maybe even the wounds that have not yet healed, I hope you would find me attentive and gentle as a listener. I hope you would know that I believe you and that I am not afraid to know these things about you. I hope you would find that the community of belonging in Jesus' name that we have been making together 
has room for your hurt and makes room for your healing. I hope all that would be true. But if you told me all those things and then you said, clearly God has been punishing me. It was the will of the Lord to strike me down and afflict me. It was the will of the Lord to crush me with pain. God has turned God's hand against me again and again all day long, besieging and enveloping me with bitterness and tribulation. God has put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry out for help, the Lord shuts out my prayer. Maybe you recognize these words from Isaiah and Jeremiah. Well, if you told me all those things, honestly, I would try to talk you out of it. Honestly, I would say no, 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 no. The suffering that you have borne comes from human beings, human institutions, human failings, human wickedness even. God has not crushed you, but the people of God almost have. And please, please give us a chance to show you that the people of God can be better than that. And you might or might not believe me about that. You know what you know, right? The Gospels are uniformly silent about the Saturday after Good Friday and before Easter. Jesus dies on Friday. And as the sun goes down, the fourth commandment of those big ten must be observed. The Sabbath day begins. Luke actually says it, that Jesus' corpse is hurriedly entombed late on Friday, and then Luke 23, 56, on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Really, that's all we get. They kept the commandment. They rested. If you have ever kept or tried to keep a strict every seventh day Sabbath practice, you might know what that feels like. I have a friend who tweets every Friday afternoon just before dinner time, the work is not done, but it is time to stop. Some Fridays I think that's beautiful, but a lot of Fridays, to be honest, it makes me shudder. <laughs> so much do I hate the feeling of the work not being done the relinquishment of my grip on accomplishment before I'm ready. Sabbath keeping is always necessarily, definitionally, liminal. It does not mark the completion of last week's to-do list. It just suspends it impossibly in midair, so much left unfinished, so much left undone. Because not only does Sabbath keeping provide us opportunity to rest, Sabbath keeping also asks us to stop pretending that we could ever do or be enough to earn our right to rest. It asks us to stop pretending that we are in control of that, that it belongs to us, that we are the assessors, the scorekeepers of what is sufficient effort and output for a human body, a human being. 
When I was a kid, we played freeze tag, where we ran around and around and around in the churchyard, and whoever was it would chase us, and if they touched you, well, then you had to just stop, frozen in mid-lope, mid-swing of the arms, a look of exaggerated surprise on your frozen face until some other kid would run by you and slap you with their hand to unfreeze you so you could run again. Sabbath is like that. It's less like a well-organized retreat from your labors and really more like being forced to freeze in midair, even, if that's where you are at sundown on Friday. Just stop and wait. Wait for something. Namely, for that very same sun to set on Saturday night in order to set you free. There is not one thing you can do to hurry the sun on its course. All you can do on the Sabbath is wait. I'm saying if we have imagined Sabbath keeping as an essential component of good self-care, well, good for us. But that's not nearly all there is in that fourth commandment. Sometimes, often, the Sabbath is God's rude interruption of our self-reliant, self-caring way of life and enforced rhythmic practice of not getting what we want for a minute, of instead waiting for things to happen, of being unable to affect the outcome. And so Sabbath-keeping, if we really did it, would be a kind of practice for the liminality that is built into our lives in so many ways, right? Waiting. Waiting for someone else to sign the papers you need so you can move on with your life. Sitting by the bedside of a beloved who is dying, but slowly. Stuck behind a cargo ship that is super stuck in the Suez Canal. Speaking of stuck, I remember pleading with my midwife to check again, tell me if I'd progressed beyond the six centimeters I'd been stuck at for what seemed like forever. She smiled serenely at me and said, now what would you do with that information if you had it? Ah, I see. Sometimes Sabbath-keeping isn't terribly restful, if by restful you mean contemplative napping in green pastures by still waters. Sometimes it just means you have to let go, whether you want to or not. You have to rest your expectation that you can do anything much about much of anything that is most important to you and your beloveds. And ain't that just a kick in the pants? Ain't that just a kick in the pants, said Mary to the other Mary and Salome as they watched Joseph of Arimathea swaddle that body and lay it to rest hurriedly without the care it deserved, without the hymns and prayers and spices and ointments, without the love they knew how to give. As the sun sank below the western wall of the city, as they hustled back to their rented room, they felt the Sabbath liminality take hold of them the way it always had. 
but multiplied exponentially by the grief of their great loss. There was nothing they could do. Nothing. Nothing. Grief is intense on any day of the week. Death is no respecter of calendars. It is always inconvenient. But Sabbath grief might be especially unbearable, for on the Sabbath, we are pressed to remember again that as the psalm says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We are pressed to release our sense of control, to relinquish our efforts and recognize that even our breathing is by God's will alone. And if that is true, the truth of it drummed into us by the practice over a lifetime of weekly Sabbath submission, well then what are we to say after the death of Jesus? If the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, if Sabbath liminality is the truth about every day, then what are we to say? What did his friends begin to say about that, about that extinguishing of breath, about the tragic and terrible loss of that light from the world? On Saturday, I mean. What did they say while they rested? While the hours of nothingness burst their illusory bubble of control, releasing back to God that which properly always belongs to God. Maybe if they were brave, they said with Isaiah 53, that it was the will of God to crush him with pain. Maybe they said the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Maybe if they were as hurt and mad as I imagine they were, they said with Jeremiah, the poet of the Lamentations, that God's hand had turned against him again and again and again, making him sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. Maybe, maybe they expressed bitter disappointment in God. Sometimes when one of you loses someone you loved, I send a bereavement card that says, if this was God's plan, then God is a terrible planner. And on a first reading, the words imply what I would say right out loud, which is that death is not God's plan. Loss of love is never God's plan. But on a second reading, on a Holy Saturday, Black Sabbath reading, Maybe those words just say what they say. God is a terrible planner. I mean, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? This loss that you've suffered, this pain that you feel, I couldn't do anything about it and neither could you. So who else's plan could it have been? So I have to tell you, church, I don't really have a way to get out of this neither homiletically speaking so that a sermon about God disappointing us ends nicely, nor existentially so that your suffering or his can be made sense of and thus soothed. All I can do is, all I've ever really been able to do is 
turn our eyes upon Jesus. For tonight, in our imaginations, he is obscured from our sight, but we know where he is, hidden in the cool darkness of a rock-hewn tomb, his body securely wrapped in a clean cloth from head to toe. He is the stone that the builders rejected, tossed onto the rubble heap. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Unless you have a strong stomach, if you could see him now, you'd hide your face from him, just like Isaiah said. He is despised and rejected, alone in the dark, bloodied and bruised, convicted with no one to testify on his behalf, executed with no one to stand witness, buried by a stranger among the rich. As he got to the end, he felt like even God had abandoned him. If this was God's plan, we say from out here, outside the tomb on Holy Saturday, then God is a terrible planner. Another way to say it. The man that lies in the tomb today is a spiritual refugee. He has been squeezed out, left out, kicked out, made to feel as though he doesn't belong among his religious kin or even in God's own heart. The man that lies in that tomb is a black man in a white world. The man that lies in that tomb is a trans woman. The man that lies in that tomb is a gay kid. The man that lies in that tomb speaks only Spanish. The man that lies in that tomb gives massages with happy endings for a living. The man that lies in that tomb can't get citizenship. The man that lies in that tomb had ancestors that were enslaved or ancestors that were smuggled over here or ancestors that we interred during wartime. The man that lies in that tomb has tattoos he doesn't regret and a couple that he really does. The man that lies in that tomb has done things, injected things, stolen things, lied about things, broken things, fucked up things. The man that lies in that tomb is far from God's heart, as far as the east is from the west. At least that's what he would tell me if he could talk, I suspect. That's what so many in his position have told me before. And on this holy Saturday, the Sabbath truth is, there's not a damn thing that he or I can do about that. It's Sabbath. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Amen and ah fucking men. Listen, I don't know. Maybe it was a mistake to make a whole Sunday be about Holy Saturday. I mean, there's a reason why the regular Sabbath only comes around every seven days, because we couldn't bear to contemplate our liminality, our powerlessness, our non-necessity any more often than that. Maybe that's why most of us don't do it all that often. And likewise, 
concerning Holy Saturday. Maybe the gospel writers left it out, this in-between time, this liminal Easter Eve, because, well, they just weren't crazy about where it might take us. After all, they spent pages and pages, paragraphs and paragraphs, showing us all the ways to narrate why and how Jesus met his end in all the human details of those last days, his own provocation to start with, how mad he made people, his trespassing across the borders that had been set up by the boundary-keeping religious authorities, his refusal to cooperate as they had with the corrupt imperial government, his best friend's lack of loyalty and courage, his crowds of followers' fickle fancy. But in the end, at least for one Sabbath's worth of grief, what has happened here can only be laid at God's feet. There's nowhere else to go with it on a Saturday. Here is your son, those women could have said if they'd been the ones to lay him in that tomb, the rock-hewn footstool of God's own self. Here is your child, your beloved, the one in whom you said you were so well pleased. If this is God's plan, God is a terrible planner. Isaiah was not afraid, and Jeremiah was not afraid to say that sometimes there's just no one else to blame a God who disappoints us sometimes, who seems to disappear when we most need God's help, whose work on our behalf is so subtle as to be experientially non-existent. Oh, our ancestors knew all about that. <laughs> they remembered it every Sabbath, keeping holy that day of rest when every blessing and every blame returns to the God who deserves them both. And as for the new mercies that come with every rising sun, well, the first day of the week is coming, church. It's coming soon. With the women, we'll get up early. Not because we can hurry the sun into the sky even one minute sooner, but because the earth is the Lord's. And everything, everything in it. At the end of a day like today, what else have we got to go on? Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps, and if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.